I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Shoshana Zuboff is a business school teacher and scholar with a theory of pretty much everything about our American condition in 2019. Unlike most theories of everything, this one is simple enough to remember. It's also complex and researched enough to feel critically intelligent, not to say plausible. The theory, in two words, is surveillance capitalism. The big business of social network companies, think Google, Facebook, Apple, who sift the signals from your phones and laptops to know, moment to moment, your heart's desire, and then sell it to you. Add a fashionable ideology of markets, a culture of consumer comfort, and the sheer force of wealth, and the rest is details. Our disquieting modern condition is not in your mind, listeners. It's in our lopsided landscape, as our guest Shoshana Zuboff maps it in a stunning, big book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. You write, Shoshana, as significant a threat to human nature in the 21st century as industrial capitalism was to the natural world in the 19th and 20th. Spell it out. <laughs> and then I'll tell you sooner or later how, how this book has affected me. Best nonfiction book I've read in I don't know how many years. Thank you, Chris. That is a great honor coming from you. I'm very <laughs> well, grateful and so happy to be here with you tonight. The, um, the history of capitalism... Uh, People generally understand, scholars who, who, who look at this, historians, capitalism has evolved by taking things that live outside of the marketplace and bringing them inside of, to the marketplace where they can be sold and they can be bought. We call that you know, commodities. Well, in, a, in, in the rise of industrial capitalism, we saw this quite clearly. For example... Industrial capitalism took work, the work that people did in their homes, in their cottages, in their gardens, brought it into the marketplace where it was reborn as wage labor that could be sold and bought. Industrial capitalism took nature, brought it into the marketplace where it was reborn as real estate, land that could be bought and sold. Now, today, in our time, surveillance capitalism follows in this kind of pattern, but with a big, big twist. The idea now is that it takes private human experience. It claims it for the marketplace mm. to be translated into behavioral data, turned into predictions about our behavior, and sold into exclusive new markets that trade in the future of human behavior. That's a large sentence. What's the worst of it? Is it that they're selling it? Is it that they're claiming the future? Is it they're digitizing and putting a number on our, you know, our wildest imagination, our souls in a sense? What's the problem there? Well, there's a whole uh, nest of problems, so Sounds like we it. can pull them out uh, one at a time. But let's start right at the beginning. They're taking our human experience and converting it into behavioral data. 
they have no right to take our human experience. Going all the way back to the early 2000s, we've had survey research that shows that when people know what kind of stuff is going on, this is back in when it was strictly an online environment, when people know what's going on, they don't want anything to do with it. They reject it. Hmm. So the idea is and has been from the beginning, hey, if we can keep the secret, then people have no opportunity to reject it. They have no opportunity to resist. If we keep it secret, then there's no friction. So this is where the idea of surveillance is born. These methods operate through a one-way mirror. So they are taking our human experience in ways that are designed to be hidden from us, secret to us, indecipherable for us. So that's the very first thing. They claim it as if it was theirs. You, you write in the book that surveillance capitalism was born literally in a conversation among Larry Page, Sergey Brin, and maybe a few others, maybe over a lunch in, in, uh, in 2001, a matter of months before 9-11. Who said what to whom and why? What, what was the design? Well, the the situation is this. The Google was a fledgling company. It had the best search engine of any that was uh, available at the time, and obviously two very brilliant, energetic young founders. But then came the dot-com bust. And before the dot-com bust, the Google founders had rejected the idea of advertising online because they said it would corrupt the online environment and corrupt their search engine. But now here we have all these startups in Silicon Valley going south, and they face that moment of truth where their investors, very swanky, you know, high-class investors. John Doerr and those guys. Exactly. Now, even those guys are saying, you know, we're, we're just about fed up with this. We're going to have to with, withdraw our support. So this became an emergency, and in this financial emergency, they declared a state of exception. And they said, to heck with those values and principles we had about advertising. What we're going to do now is we're going to take the leftover data. We have behavioral data from people's searches. A lot of it we use to improve our service. But there's a whole bunch left over. Hmm. We call it data exhaust. It's left over. It's sitting in the data logs in these servers. No one's paying any attention to it. They discovered that there is tremendous predictive power in these leftover data. So predictive in the, meaning meaning that you can use uh, put together all these different traces of a person's online behavior appetites dreams and 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 much more subtle cues that are buried within the actual content the metadata buried in the actual content let me just say it's to be going after your own users it sounds cannibalistic it sounds uh, Treacherous in a way. Parasitic. Uh, but can it be worse than the way old capital, industrial capital, treated the workers at River Rouge in, in Detroit? Or I'm thinking of John D. Rockefeller's Colorado Mines, um, the Ludlow Massacre just before World War One. I. I mean, that was pretty rough, too. Is this different, worse, the future? How do we feel about it? They're, all they're doing is taking my identity and, you know, nobody gets hurt, right? Or... Can you justify it? Can anybody justify it? 
All right. Well, uh, let's for a moment compare it to the violence of, of industrial capitalism. And what I'm describing with surveillance capitalism is not violent in that traditional sense. They're not after our bodies. You know, they're not going to pummel us with clubs. It's not totalitarianism. It's not trying to murder us or terrorize us. But what happened with the old violent industrial capitalism? We could see the enemy. And that mobilized our population to eventually put pressure on our elected officials. We developed laws. We developed regulatory mm-hmm. regimes. We outlawed that kind of behavior. We outlawed child labor. We outlawed forcing people to work 70 hours a week. We outlawed unsafe working conditions. Mm-hmm. We outlawed unfair labor practices and so on and so on and so on. Now we have a situation where for the past 20 years, surveillance capitalism has been allowed to root and flourish virtually unimpeded by law. And the reason is the first word in this term, surveillance, because they learned how to Mm. create these methods and practices secretly bypassing our awareness. We were never given the opportunity to decide, never given the right to choose, never given the right to say no, to combat, to resist. And as We're in a, the largest ungoverned space in the universe, you say, about online. So what are they doing? What are they doing, you know, overhearing my phone? All right. Well... So the core business principle here, the core commercial operation is we take your experience from wherever we can get it, you know, so it, it, it began with your browsing and your searching, it translated over into all of your online behavior, and then you know, quickly, uh, you remember the out, the outburst that came out around the world as we learned that Google could now take what you did online and match it to your real-world shopping behavior, right? So it's, it's extending and it's growing the aspects of your experience that it's claiming for this translation process. And what's key here, translating into behavioral data to create in combination with its machine intelligence, its unique computational abilities to create these predictions of what you're going to do and then sell it to the many, many different kinds of business customers who want to know about your future, who want to know what you will do and how they can influence that and how they can get you to do what will be profitable for them. Shoshana Zuboff, what is it costing me? And more particularly, what is it costing the next generation, who perfectly, happily give up their privacy rights for the convenience of Google Maps? Yes, such a good question. So what surveillance capitalists understood as the competition for better and stronger, more powerful predictions continued to evolve, they understood eventually that the most predictive data is the data that comes from actually intervening in your experience Mm. and trying to shape your behavior and tune your behavior and herd it toward those outcomes that are most profitable. So we've seen this all, all around us now. For example, when Facebook conducts these huge online contagion experiments, mm. it's actually using subliminal cues in its pages 
to, in one experiment, to get us to vote, in another experiment, to change our emotions from sad to happy or happy to sad. So it's learning how to shape our behavior. In the game Pokemon Go, We're going to talk about we'll that. come back to it. We'll come back to it. But, but uh, it can also read our mood on a Friday afternoon when we're pooped and we're looking for a lift or a change of pace it or something indeed. to do on the weekend. Uh, and it can steer us this way or that. We're talking about a most remarkable 600-page book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by our guest Shoshana Zuboff. Coming up, the audacity of being Google, offering the city of Toronto a future, just for example. This is Open Source. Surveillance capitalism, as Shoshana Zuboff calls it, dropped a bold offer on Canada's major metropolis two years ago, Sidewalk Labs, owned by Google's parent company, now called Alphabet Inc., announced plans to develop 12 acres of waterfront property in downtown Toronto to build the world's first neighborhood from the Internet up. Just imagine, pristine urban landscape, driverless cars, heated streets, sensor-enabled waste separation, improved public services powered by data. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called it a test bed for technologies to help us build smarter, greener, more inclusive cities in Canada and around the world. For the company, Eric Schmidt explained the genesis of the project. He said, Google's chiefs got excited just thinking of all the things you could do if someone would just give us a city and put us in charge. Not everybody cheered. We spoke this week with Bianca Wiley, who was leading the citizen opposition. When this project launched... The narrative was that this was going to be great for Toronto because it's an economic development opportunity. The fact that Sidewalk Labs was saying, we picked Toronto, wasn't even registering with people how wrong that was, that corporations don't pick a city. A city is supposed to be in charge of its procurement of its vendors. So I have to be honest that 15 months in, we're in a very boiling frog scenario where some of the worst parts of this have already happened. You have a corporation talking like it's a democratically elected government. When you hear that line, you sort of expect he's going to announce he's running for mayor. Yeah. When you listen to representatives of the company, they talk like they're the government. At the first public meeting, you had the CEO of Sidewalk Labs saying, we are here to improve your quality of life. But when you ask what the business model is... No straight answers. And it has been months and months of vagueness about how the money will be made here or elsewhere. But the predominant narrative is this is going to be good for you. And the politicians in this country have taken up the same line that this is somehow good for the city of Toronto and good for Canada. So what did you do and who did you find yourself working with? The only issue that has been able to get any traction, because even the press is caught off guard with this kind of stuff, is privacy. But privacy is absolutely not the biggest problem with a project like this. And it has served Sidewalk Labs very well to have people talk about privacy for over a year, when what we should be talking about is power, control, democracy, a massive Mm. power asymmetry. But those issues aren't coming out. Can you bring it to a vote at some point? 
interesting question because not only is this plan currently not slated to go to our city council for a yes or no vote, so there is not at the moment a formal off-ramp for this, the problem is politicians in this time are terrified of looking anti-innovation or looking like they're not into technology. So there is a lot here that, again, plays into this environment where people are not well organized and understanding of the issues to respond to this. So even if it does go to city council for a vote, I've talked to politicians who think things within the city aren't working well and that this is a logical way to respond. We almost know what a Google city would look like. It would be shiny as can be. There'd be all kinds of luxury apartments and very high-paying jobs. But we almost certainly know that poor people, immigrants, people of color would be neglected. I mean, don't we know that going in? The hubris of this vision is that it just is completely ahistorical to the issues that cities are facing and that, you know, racialized people who've been subject to mass data collection for a very long time, those issues are just being swept to the side. And this is somehow being put forward as a city of the future that that will be supporting affordability and, you know, accessibility and public spaces for all. The problem is, to your point, that this is all a conversation now about how to manage some of the issues inherent in, say, mass data collection or in, say, gentrification that comes with the kind of, you know, developments and jobs and the rest of it here. And this is the problem is that we're talking about mitigating a plan that has a corporate bent to it instead of starting, which is saying, does anybody even want this? Does anybody even want any data collected, right? Like there's a different future version, Hmm. you know, people who could have a beautiful future vision for the city that's equitable and inclusive. Um, That's not the conversation we're having. But somehow all of those words are being used by a for-profit corporation in terms of how they would run a city. What happens here is just a test bed for their global product development. I'm not here to be someone's lab. I'm here for the government to respond to the needs of the people that live here. Bianca, I'm wondering as you speak how many American cities could resist the Google temptation if they came to New York and said, uh, give us Staten Island and we'll make it shine for the future or Harlem for that matter. Because of what's happened in the last year, say, in the tech industry, like Cambridge Analytica for sure was was one of those moments where suddenly a lot of people were thinking, hold on, like, what's going on here? I think when people see each other and they realize we can get together and like just not have this happen to us, we keep being told this is just the future. Deal with it. Like we've taken human agency out of these things. We've taken politics out of it for sure. That's the MO of this industry. That's how the tech industry operates is they say this is the inevitable future. This is permissionless innovation. This is a moment where we can stop that and take charge of this stuff. And I think people are excited to do that. Technologists, urbanists, lots of people who want to see different visions of the future. So I feel hopeful that people would say no, no, we're not doing this. This is not the only way forward. And if we have problems, let's fix them within our institutions because we can't get them back. That was Bianca Wiley. She is both political advocate and techie, the co-founder of Tech Reset Canada. Shoshana Zuboff, she sounds worried to me. Google versus democracy, she's afraid the people and even the city council, maybe the prime minister, would say, well, let's go Google. What do you think? She sounds indignant. And if there is one thing that we need, it is a lot more indignation just the way Bianca is expressing it. We all need to be indignant at this. Surveillance capitalism is what I call a coup from above. 
It's not an overthrow of the state so much as an overthrow of the people's sovereignty. Yes. Because in order to finally get all of these data that drive its success in these private marketplaces where they trade exclusively in behavioral futures, in order to do that, they need everything and they need more and they need more until it approaches totality. So it began with us online. Now it's all the way to cities and pretty soon it's all the way to entire populations. People, people seem to have been anesthetized, if not just plain tricked. The future means Google. We've got we to gotta lay down on the tracks for Google somehow. Bianca mentioned the idea that there are city officials in Toronto who don't want to look like they're anti-innovation, like they're anti-technology. Right. Okay. Well, here's, here's, here's a tip, Bianca. This is a huge category error that has been imposed on, the, on us, and it's, it's just as basic as a magician's tricks of misdirection. Mm. You know, look over here while I do the trick over on the other side. This is misdirection. Surveillance capitalism has nothing to do with digital technology. They're not the same thing. We can easily imagine digital technology, a, a, a de- democratic city using all kinds of digital technology to en- for citizens to enhance their own lives. We can imagine that without surveillance capitalism. But we can't imagine surveillance capitalism without the digital. These are two separate categories. And so we're, we're trained to think that, you know, if you speak out against this stuff, you're anti-technology and so forth. Nothing could be further from the truth. What we have to do is get back to a place where the technology is empowering, where the technology is democratizing. That cannot happen under surveillance capitalism. We've got to figure that out. But I want to hear more about what Google actually does every day. Uh, Toronto is a terrific example. But there are so many things that I've – they passed before us. The digitizing of every page of every book in every university library, what was that, 10, 15 years ago? Um, what were they up to? What are, were they up to with this project Street View in which every front door in America, maybe the world, uh, turned up on their site, including my own? Um, but maybe start with Pokemon Go. That was another thing in the, in the din of daily life. What, what's that all about? People gathering in on Boston Common. What was that up to? That was a Google wholly owned project. What was the purpose? Okay. Well, I'm so glad you asked about Pokemon Go, Chris, because Pokemon Go really is the precursor to the Toronto plan. Hmm. So there's there's a big link here. Pokemon Go was incubated at Google, um, run by the man who invented what eventually became Google Earth, and also later he ran Street View. These are all ways of getting, siphoning huge amounts of data from the real world. Now we're out, we're we're Are they looking of, inside my windows as well as at my door, you know, the street Yeah, view? exactly. I mean, we're no longer, you know, you're no longer sitting at your laptop. You're no longer on your computer. It's even beyond your phone. Now we're out into the world and the world that is uh, saturated with, with sensors. And the idea here, as we, we touched on before, how do we actually shape your behavior through the medium, this whole digital medium of sensors and cameras and your phone and all the other ways that we can touch you? And so how do we use this medium to shape and shift and modify your behavior in the direction of 
outcomes that are profitable to our business customers. Explain what they, how that applied in Pokemon. Pokemon so in Go. Pokemon Go, you had folks, you know, with their phones chasing these augmented reality creatures, the the, the Pokemons. And and they thought that they were playing a game. You know, you catch the creatures, you go to different levels and so forth. The real game, however, was hidden from the folks who were playing it. <laughs> because the real game was that Pokemon Go was created was creating its own private marketplace with business customers. So the McDonald's, for example, the bars, the restaurants, the pizza joints, the the car mechanics, the retail shops, all these people were paying Pokemon Go a fee to bring footfall to mm. their establishments, which is exactly like paying Google for an online ad to bring click-throughs to its its advertising that, that's put on your page. So instead of the click-through, which is the online virtual version, now we have real footfall in the real world with your real body and your real feet. Real, real bodies and real feet, but with identities coming with them. We know what they with drink. We know how long they drink, we, who they come with, We know where you are, where you're going, who you're with, what you're talking about. We can know all of that. So now... Pokemon Go is being paid by all of these business establishments uh, for guaranteed footfall. So Pokemon Go is putting, you know, creatures in the bar that pays the fee, creatures in the McDonald's that pay the fee, creatures in the in the shops and the and the services that pay the fee, and now they're learning how to shunt and herd and 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 direct you toward those establishments, toward those locations where they're going to get paid. Sophisticated. This is the model that she this, she wants to put her hands on the model for Toronto that they won't talk about. They won't tell you what the model is. This is the model. They will be directing the behavior of the Toronto population, mm. of Toronto citizens, toward those outcomes that are profitable for Google because they're the outcomes that its customers will pay for. Period. Subliminal, subliminal marketing of sorts. Speak of these other things they do, though, including Street View, but also when they gather up every page of every book, is that to keep it away from somebody else? Is it to – they don't sell it, uh, but what, what's the end game here? Even in Toronto, it, it, it is fascinating to think that they say they'll share the information. Anybody can have it. But, of course, I wouldn't know what to do with it. Maybe you wouldn't either. But they know exactly how to play with it. But to what end, finally? Okay. Well, we, you know, you ask about books. Um, people for many years now have described Google as an octopus. You know, it's got it's got books and it's got... Well, it had for a while, you know, social media. It's mm. attempted a social network, and it has the the street view and the maps and uh, all these online services and the shopping services and all. all right, what what is Google? All right. So to understand the answer to that question, what you have to do is step back from all of these things. What is Google? Google is a thing that takes your personal experience and translate it translates it into personal data for predictions. So what does it need? It needs the behavioral data. Mm. It needs it from everywhere. It needs it at scale. It needs it at scope, which means variety. 
and it needs it uh, as predictable as possible, which means like from your from your actions as it tries to shift your actions. So every single thing that it does is an interface to draw you in to get that behavioral data from you. So it does books. So you will come and read the books. You will go onto Google. You will read the books. And it will get data about your reading behavior. It does street view because it wants to be able to direct you through the city and get data about your location behavior. There's something about the f- capturing the future and making it certain, taking the surprise and the alternative ownerships out that that echoes under all of this, right? Yes, that is a profound principle here because the more they shift us toward the behavior that favors them, which is called behavioral modification. So in a way, what we can say about Google is it is a giant global digital means of behavioral modification. What that does is it turns us into stimulus response in ways that are designed to be outside of our awareness. Skinnerism, behaviorism. Skinnerism, behaviorism. There's no you except in the And there is no free will. Because Skinner did not believe in free will. He believed everything was stimulus and response. And what what surveillance capitalism is doing, what Google and Facebook and others are doing, is creating the, the automated systems of stimulus, response, reinforcement, rewards and punishments that shape our behavior. And it does it in such an automatic, subliminal, out-of-our-awareness, secretive way that we, we can't intervene in it and even know it's happening. So it's literally robbing us of our own agency toward the future. For people of my generation, I I think it's fair to say there's something narcotized uh, and dangerous about this. Sedated. uh, Yes, but for another generation, it's it's something they happily choose. Nobody's forced to go on Facebook um, and or or, or all of these places – what, what am I missing? Or, 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 or what's the warning perhaps that they're missing? Well, it's interesting because, you know, we've sent the youngest among us out to scout the frontiers of this crazy new territory. And, of course, what's true about young people, and this is the, perhaps the most important issue of all, young people are forming their identities, And, you know, they're in a very open, vulnerable stage. And what researchers have determined is that the dominant process in the social network is what's called social comparison. You know, the the kids are always comparing themselves to one another. Right. FOMO. Fear of missing out. FOMO is one of the consequences of that. So in this intense frenzy of unprecedented social comparison and pressure – what happens is this becomes a magnetic force that they literally cannot look away. In fact, the, the, the head of Facebook's marketing at one point actually says to a group of advertisers at a conference, we want to make it so at first they don't want to look away and later they can't. They can't look away because we've got them so hooked in these social comparison processes that feed the fragile, fragile egos of these young people trying to become. Before we're done, I want to hear more about something you've written about that companies like Ford with users 
not not digital users, but real users, <laughs> drivers like the Harley Davidson drivers have an identity, and they're a market, and they're being having these kinds of pressures applied to them too. Shoshana Zubov is our guest. Coming up, what if we called it digital determinism, searching for downstream effects of social media? This is open source. Jaron Lanier is a scientist, a musician, an author with roots in both digital technology and its opposition. He made a big noise in 2006 with his online essay, Digital Maoism, The Hazards of the New Online Collectivism. And then he wrote a book about the hive mind in 2010 titled, You Are Not a Gadget. I asked Jaron Lanier this week to get us thinking about the cumulative effect of our digital habits, the emotional and eventually political effects, especially from social media. When you study what social media can do to people, it changes a minority of people slightly, but the problem is it does it relentlessly and cumulatively. So over time, you start to see this change. And I think the easiest way to characterize the change is that the qualities of fear and anger, or more more properly, the, the scattered versions of them, of irritability and resentment and paranoia, these qualities become more generally amplified than they ha- than they've typically been and that shift in the the center of gravity of society then is reflected in our politics and in our interpersonal relationships and it's not a gigantic shift because that stuff was always there but it's definitely a shift in emphasis it's measurable it's been measured sounds like trump but who else where else do you notice it well some of the other public figures who've really been shifted that way are uh, Kanye and Elon Musk. Mm. And what I find fascinating about this is that the male persona of power is different now than it used to be before the Facebook brands like Instagram showed up. It used to be that male power was all about mystique and invulnerability. That was always the Iron Man. The Man of Steel is what uh, Stalin means. That was that was the, the image of power. The new idea is that this powerful man is this cryberry baby, and he's worried about who likes him, who doesn't like him. He takes offense easily. He's he's wearing this kick me sign on his back, saying stupid things just to get into dumb bar fights all the time, which he'll lose, where he'll get beat up. And you have to ask, why is this crybaby persona suddenly powerful? And I think the answer is that the the social media effects that bring this out in people, this kind of juvenile need for constant reinforcement and constant sharing, the audience that these men have out there, the Trump followers, also have their social media addiction, have the same degradation, so they identify with it. It's a different relationship between a following and a man of power than used to exist. It really is a, a shift in the world. The way it works is there are algorithms that are looking for whether a person has changed their behavior in response to something that happened in their feed or in their experience with a device, what they do is they just look for anything that gets a rise out of people that they can repeat. And the fight or flight emotions, irritability and paranoia are the most reliable for getting a measurable change out of a person. So they just happen again and again. It's just treated as fuel by the algorithms for whatever is the biggest rise they can get. And then the biggest rise is always something negative and awful. There's a crash of the digital utopia out there for sure, even in people like me. When does it have critical mass or real significance? 
I think some of the signs that it might be going awry are political results all over the world that seem to correlate with nothing other than the arrival of Facebook brands in countries as different as Sweden and Brazil, in which a cranky, paranoid politics comes to the fore and starts to damage the level of democracy and comfort and tends to especially disadvantage the vulnerable people in each country. If we were to somehow see a movement like that globally, we'd worry that the system is having a negative effect. Information supremacy becomes capital supremacy, so we should also worry if we see an extreme new gilded age around those who are associated with the biggest computers, if they start to be the richest people in the world and control all the wealth, and if there seems to be no end in sight, that's probably a sign that something is going awry with the way we're handling information technology. If either of these things were ever to somehow happen, and I'm not saying that they will, then I think we should view them as a sign that we've entered into a very dark space and we have to change our ways. If we see a gilded age, I mean, do we not? I'm, I'm speaking ironically. Okay. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course we've seen the same political degradation all over the world, even in countries with nothing in common. You might say that xenophobia happens because of immigration crises, and yet it happens in countries that don't have immigration crises. You might say it happens in countries with a traditionally weak democracy, but that hasn't been true. You might say it happens in countries that have extreme wealth disparities, that's not true. Like I say, Sweden and Brazil and many other countries, they, they don't really have anything in common except that Facebook is giving people the news. Facebook is channeling vast amounts of paranoid and irritable stuff. I was in Brazil during the election of Bolsonaro, and people were saying, oh, well, WhatsApp can't be used this way. Yeah, of course it can. Anything that, that's driven on Facebook's business model or Google's or YouTube, YouTube is another one can be used that way and is being used that way. And you will continue to see horrible, stupid politics. It's not a left or right question. It's just a question of whether irritability and paranoia become the most important emotions in politics. And if that's the case, it doesn't matter whether the person calls himself a leftist or a right-winger, that they're going to be ascendant and it's going to be to the detriment of the world. The INP effect, irritability and paranoia. <laughs> We've got to measure it and watch it relentlessly. The INP index. Jaron Lanier, you're a lot of fun and you know too much and you've always known too much about this road we're on. All right. Thank you, Jaron Lanier. Okay, thanks for having me on. Jaron Lanier has said for a long time that Facebook and Google, with their top-down control schemes, should be called behavior modification empires. Shoshana Zuboff, count the ways we're being modified. And not just behavior, but in, in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, what's left. Well, again, you know, I, I go back to our, our young people. Um, we we as I said before, we've sent them out to this frontier, and it's important for our listeners to know that this is a frontier that is owned and operated by private capital, specifically by private surveillance capital. So it's it's not like, you know, our, our young people are out there, you know, connecting and finding them and just doing all these things in an innocent environment. Are so, you daring to say it could be otherwise? I am absolutely certain that it can be otherwise. Um, what has happened now is that the, 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 the digital world that we had so much hope for, that, that offered so much promise for connection and voice and democratization and empowerment, 
has been taken over by an economic logic that has come to dominate it. And, you know, uh, Jaron is talking about Google and Facebook, and we've been talking a lot about Google and Facebook. But it's very important to understand this is no longer confined to Google and Facebook. Started at Google, went to Facebook, became dominant in Silicon Valley, but now spreads across the entire economy, every sector. Case in point, Ford Motor Company. Yeah, let's hear it. The CEO of Ford Motor just in the last months has said that the way that this company is going to return to profit margins, to he wants to have those same thick profit margins that they see at Google and Facebook. Don't we all? Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, there's a worldwide slump in automobile sales. So what's he going to do? He's going to turn those cars, as he says, with the little blue oval that say Ford on them, into surveillance vehicles. A hundred million people in those cars. Hmm. Now they're going to stream data from those drivers. And those data are going to be combined with all the data they have about us from Ford Credit where he says, we already know everything about you. And using those data, agglomerating those data, selling those agglomerations onto business customers, maybe teaming up with the machine intelligence capabilities that allows Ford to actually develop predictions and sell those predictions. And what's the, what's the bad part there? <laughs> what's what's the, the beef? Wh- okay, well, what's the beef? What's the beef is all the things we've been talking about. We are... We are illegitimately robbed of our experience, people invading our experience without our knowledge. What if we paid the drivers for it, those 100 million Ford users? All right. Well, there's a lot of discussion about data ownership as, um, you know, as as a way of sort of balancing the power around privacy. But I reject that as a solution because... There's no point in owning data that should not exist in the first place. The things that we say in our cars, the things that we do in our cars, the gaze of our eye, the direction that our eyes are gazing, all of these things are being now siphoned off by telematics. The point here is, do I have control of my own experience? Do I make choices about what my... um, what is shared, what is known, Uh, do I have choices about my future behavior, do I say this is what I want in the future and then I exercise my will to achieve it, or am I shunted there and herded there through these behavioral modification means that I can't control? These are the things that are happening to our children. And when you look at the art and the, the, um, the, the things that young people are producing, it's all about hiding. Young people are now producing you know, costumes and textiles and uh, artistry that's all about how do I hide in this life? How do I hide from the watchers? That's a very broad generalization. My father was always checking us on that kind of thing. But let me... Let me give you just one sort of broad pushback on the whole business of what we call it. You call it surveillance capitalism. I can hear a lot of people in this audience, especially near Boston, pushing back saying, we call it the information economy. And it's been very, very good to us. It it revived, it put New England back in business after the mills closed. It seeded innumerable startups became became giants, a lot of them. 
immense new value creation, they would say, jobs, companies, good wages. Among other things, it made Michael Dukakis and John Kerry both presidential nominees in the last three decades. What's so bad about that? <laughs> well, I'm all for the information economy. I want the information economy to thrive, and I want digital technology to empower us and fulfill its promise of democratization. The problem now is that since Michael Dukakis and the uh, the the miracle of the Boston software industry. That's just a miracle. Good job. Good way. <laughs> um, all, all, you know, all of that is fantastic. And in those days, when we imagined how the stuff was going to work, we imagined it as you know data that was going to be completely uh, under the auspices of the the people who generate it. It's if it's a smart home. All of the data from the smart home is mine, the occupants. I decide what it means, if I share it, who I share it with. All that has changed now because the smart home now means a whole range of devices and interfaces that siphon our data off to third parties and more third parties and how more third parties. How could we get parties. it back from what has become a sort of profit-making monster? How, right. how could either the government or the smart universities, which spawned a lot of this stuff, uh, say, no, we're going to do this in the public interest. Well, the way we get it back uh, takes us through back to politics, back to democracy, and back to law. This is calling on the resources of our democratic institutions to once again be the oversight, to once again be the regulatory powers. And we need the laws that are going to curb the raw excesses of this new form, this rogue form of information capitalism based on surveillance and unilateral power to curb these practices and even outlaw them in many, in many aspects Could of this. Could we get back to the real meaning of real words like, for example, search – or Search. friend, used as a verb or a noun. Or, or face, the mystery, the magic, the beauty of the faces we love without facial recognition, thank you. Well, as I, as I tell my children and my students whenever I talk to young people, search used to mean a kind of existential struggle, a journey yes, through life please. where we discovered our identity <laughs> the and our is not meaning, <laughs> right? Where there were no answers, where, as the great poet Antonio Machado said, the road is made as you go. That is search, not a few clicks to answers that are already in existence from some kind of machine. And when it comes to... Um, you know, the idea of friends. What is a friend but an embodied presence? We look in one another's eyes. We share experience together. We share time together. We share love. When it comes to recognition, what is recognition but the deep familiarity of home, of place, of family, not 
facial recognition, not mm. voice recognition. These are the experience that create the human inwardness that is the resource for our autonomy, for our moral judgment, for our courage, for our will. And these are the mm. very things that we are deprived of. So when they say to us, if you have nothing to hide— you know, then you're fine, then you don't have to worry. My response to that is, if you have nothing to hide, then you are nothing. Because everything is about the inner resources that make us fit for a democratic society. You know, this drives me, as so many things do, back to my man Dostoevsky and notes from underground. I want to check this quote. Our hero, underground, says at some point that in every man's memories, maybe women too, there are three caves of darkness. Stuff he won't reveal to everyone, only to friends. That's one. Stuff he'll reveal not to friends, but only to himself and there in secret. And then stuff he's afraid to reveal even to himself. Today, Google knows all. All three caves. All three caves. They're no longer caves. They are they are uh, resources. Mines that have been stripped down to the bare bone. <laughs> yeah, I mean we're talking the big H humanity. The caves here. are gone. There is no exit. This is. Do we not start okay. again? Do you have instructions before we're done? Well, first of all, our listeners, the young people who are listening. I want everyone to know that this is not okay, that this is not legitimate, that this is not how a democratic society should operate, mm. and that we can change this. We change this with our politics. There is nothing inevitable about this. Our democratic societies have have confronted capitalism before successfully tethering it to our interests and the needs of democracy. We've done it before. We will do it again. It begins with us, with our indignation, our outrage. It's time for a digital tea party. Shoshana Zuboff, an hour is not enough. This is wonderfully interesting, and we didn't even get to the fascinating responses to your book. FT, Financial Times. Pillar of Capitalism loves this book. The Guardian loves this book. The New York Times gives it gives it real respect. Um, and we're going to figure that out as we go along. <laughs> Thank you so much, Shoshana Zuboff. Thank Thanks you. also to Thank Jaron you, Lanier Prince. and Bianca Wiley. Thanks also to Brian Barth, who guided us through Toronto. Our show this week was produced by all certified analog human beings Connor Gillies, Rebecca Panovka, the artist Susan Coyne, and the engineer George Hicks. Mary McGrath handles our big data. I'm Christopher Leiden. See you next time on Open Source. <laughs>